Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have joined forces to battle evil, the newest heroes joining the champions of the Golden Age, presenting Tales of the Justice Society of America. and welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode four of the show. Uh, I'm Michael Bailey, and with me, as he has been for the past three weeks, is Scott H. Gardner, because apparently that's important. It is important. <laughs> so how are you doing today, Scott? It distinguishes me from the Scott Gardner that I've seen on the internet who's some sort of, like, sex offender or something. I'm not that guy, okay? So... I just want to make that. Then why did you knock on my door the other day and tell me that according to Megan's law, you have to tell me you lived on the block? Shh. Shh. <laughs> Talk about that. I just don't know how you found my house. <laughs> you live in Carrollton. <laughs> uh, so how are you doing this week? Scott? Hey, I'm doing peachy keen. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Looks like we got another piece of. Listener mail. This is excellent. Yeah, I'm I'm loving that we're getting mail right out of the gate like this. This is great. This one comes to us from Jose, and I'm sorry, Jose, I don't know your last name. Uh, we're we're not able to see that on the on the email through the this Gmail account that we have. Um, it just uh, it's just signed Jose. He he writes to us saying, "Hey, I love letters that start that way." By the way. Says I've just finished the first episode and couldn't have enjoyed it more. Sure you could have, but I love you saying that anyway. He says, I, much like Michael, became a fan of the Justice Society late in the game. I'm 26 and I discovered the Justice Society in 99 with Jane, James Robinson's Starman and the JSA series. It was then through back issues that I discovered All-Star Squadron, some of an in, uh, Infinity Incorporated, and my all-time favorite, the Young All-Stars. Oh, that's great. Since I totally agree with your points that the Justice Society are a family, that's why I love this team. The Justice League is a collection of heroes that came together when the situation calls for it. The Justice Society seems like they're around each other because they want to be. I, I think that's a great point. I, I totally agree. Uh -huh. Yes. And he asks us a question here, and this is... Quite the question. He says, with the removal of Earth 2 during Crisis on Infinite Earths, do you feel it helped or hurt the history of the Justice Society? Keep up the amazing work, and I can't wait to read All-Star Squadron along with you guys. Jose. That's a huge question. Um, what do you think of that? My initial answer is yes, because I think it, ta it it took away something of the uniqueness of the team, and it took away Superman, Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman, and Green Arrow from 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 the early days. You know, there are there's a certain line of thinking out there that if Superman isn't the first superhero of the DC universe, that something is lost. Now, as a burn 
stern Carlin Superman fan, you know, it, it, part of me is like, well, no, you can you can have the Golden Age heroes, and then you can have Superman be the first hero of the second heroic right. age. But there's also a part of me that's like, no, it's it works so much better that Superman is the inspiration, and then they've ham-fistedly made him the inspiration now in a really kind of I thought it was kind of a dumb and cheesy way. I don't know if you ever read that Golden Age Secret Origin. I liked Origins. that. I really did like that. I didn't see it as as ham fisted at all, only because I think a lot of people aren't even aware of that story. Yeah. But uh no, I actually liked that. I liked that it 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 it, it somewhat half assed tied him back in very much in the same way that that Byrne during his Wonder Woman run made Hippolyta yeah. the Golden Age Wonder Woman. I, I kind of like that. I, I kind of like that the, uh, an attempt was made to somewhat reestablish the the Golden Age importance of these characters. You know, I, whether it was clumsy or, or whatever, at least the attempt was made. I, I liked that. So... My man, this is a tough, tough question because my my initial thing. See, I I, I lived through Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, I, I was really into comics at that point, having you know, been collecting for a few years, and and I looked at at Crisis as I, I looked forward to it when it came out. I thought it was excellent. They were finally because I you know I was a kid. And I was very naive in the aspect of I believed everything that was told to me from DC that, you know, that the reasons they said they were doing the crisis are, were the real reasons why they were doing it, which was, you know, their their continuity had become very convoluted. There were too many Earths. There was too much confusion. They were going to clean it all up. They were going to unify it, and they were going to go forward from that point forevermore and, and all that. And... So I liked that. While I lamented the loss of certain characters that were, you know, done away with, with the crisis, you know, characters that became superfluous, you know, like the multiple versions of of certain characters that existed both in the Justice League and the Justice Society. Ultimately, I liked the idea that now they all existed in one timeline so that the Justice Society didn't have to jump through hoops to team up with the Justice League. They were all on the same earth. You know, the Justice Society had had been the original team in the the 30s and 40s. They inspired the Justice League who were modern day. Some of them were still active, and they once in a while they got together, and there was no dimensional barrier bullshit. They they just all lived on the same planet. I thought that was great. But fast forward to today, and the Crisis on Infinite Earths, while it remains my favorite comic book event and story of all time, I think it's largely lost its teeth. It's largely irrelevant now. And so... Yeah, looking back on it all now, I, I kind of wish Earth Two had just c- kept on plugging away the, the way it was, and that that you know it had never been done away with. You know, I'm one of the few people I know that actually thrilled to the fact of we sort of kind of half-assed got Earth Two back in that recent uh, Justice Society of America annual. 
I don't know that it's supposed to be the same Earth two, but it felt it isn't. It's 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 a it's a new version of the old Earth two. Right. I mean, I, it, to me, it's close enough that I'm I'm thrilled. You know, I think that's cool. I, I hope that somebody takes that and runs with it. I would I would totally buy and read that book. You know, especially if Ordway was to do it. You know, like he did. A- no, but but apparently Grant Morrison is going to be handling a lot of stuff with the multiple Earths. So there you go. <sighs> Yeah, I, I knew that was a hand grenade when I threw yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 th- I, I think, you know, to close out my end of this question is that I, the, the one reason why I will, I will say, uh, I'm like you, I love the crisis. I love it as a story. I love it as an event. But it completely screwed Roy Thomas over. Right. And with everything he had established, and I don't think Infinity Incorporated ever recovered. No. From from losing the Earth 2 aspect Young All-Stars managed to uh, because it, it managed to kind of take the ball and run with it, but there was too much of Infinity Incorporated. You know, you, the mother of the main of one of the main characters had to change. Right. And, 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 and re-explaining who her mother was was just like, it just took all of the fun out of it. But I really can't say too much because, you know, I, I didn't grow up during it. I'm, I'm looking at all of this from kind of an academic standpoint and a bizarre sense of nostalgia for an era I was never a part of. So, all right. You got anything else on that? No, I, I hope we answered his question on that. You know, I, I, I it was kind of a – it's, it's a mixed bag of emotions. It's hard to yes. it's hard to answer that, that question totally i mean his question was do we help do we feel that it helped or hurt i think it both helped and hurt yes all righty well let's move on to the second part of tales of the golden age for lack of a better uh uh name for the uh for the segment where i am going through story by story uh, the uh, the first issue, uh, the first appearance, excuse me, of the Justice Society of America in All Star Comics number three. Last week, uh, I talked about how Johnny Thunder basically uh, crashed the party and was kind of a douchebag, and how we heard the Flash and his seafaring adventure. We get to hang out with Hawkman this time out. It doesn't have a story title. But if it did, I think it would be one of the lines of dialogue Hawkeye (laughs) Hawkman gives right before he uh, he starts it. The men who could live in fire. And it opens up with a quick history lesson on the eruption of Krakatoa in 1883, which uh, killed over 36,000 people. Well, apparently Krakatoa has been going into action again. Hawkman in his identity of Carter Hall uh, is discussing the, the subject at the Science Club in New York with his helpmate, Shiera Sanders, uh, who is planning to go to Krakatoa because apparently there have been reports of fierce explosions heard underground and strange balls of fire seen by the natives. So the first night there, some dude tries to kill Shiera, and after Carter socks it to him, the man that was trying to kill her warns her to stay away or the fire ghosts will get her because she seeks to learn about Mazda, who controls them. So he chases the guy off, and Carter and her have sex. And the reason why I say this is because the very next panel is like showing the, their heads together, 
you don't see their bodies, but it's all flesh colored. So I get, I get, I get the idea that Carta and Chiara like totally got busy in that moment. Um, and after he leaves her, uh, hopefully satisfied, uh, he returns home and uh, changes clothes to Hawkman. Excuse me, I got something wrong there. The guy attacked her in New York. I'm sorry, I thought they had gotten there already. But anyways, Hawkman rushes back, changes clothes, uh, grabs the hammer of Thor, flies to Krakatoa, and investigates the matter. He sees men coming out of the volcano pulling a Jim Hammond. I can't say Johnny Storm because he hasn't been created yet. (laughs) I guess guess Jim Hammond would be the human torch of the the Golden Age because he was. Right. And he rushes back to tell Shiera about it. And I think they totally do it because when he shows up at her window, uh, she's like in bed. She's only wearing a bra. The next panel, she's lying in bed holding the sheet over her and he's kind of leaning in with that how you doing look uh, you know body language they ru- they go to Krakatoa put on asbestos suits that look really goofy because he's still got the wings and the mask on <laughs> and the red undershorts they hop into the volcano and are soon overtaken by more of these human torch guys they are brought before Mazda who looks like the bad guy from Temple of Doom what was his name again? Um, Molaram. Molaram. He's a, yeah, Mazda Molaram. You know, this dude looks like he's about 16 seconds away from going, Kalima! <laughs> Kalima! Uh, he takes a liking to Shiera and explains about that his force generator harnesses the midichlorians, I'm sorry, harnesses the pockets of hot steam and fuses them into sheer power. Uh, Hawkman and Shiera are thrown off a cliff, and instead of uh, taking his wings off, like they should have done when they capture him, they let them they let him keep them. And Hawkman saves Shiera. He goes back to face uh, Mazda, uh, who totally looks like the dude from Temple of Doom, as I said. In fact, I think there should be a line of dialogue in here that says, "Hey, Molaram, prepare to meet Kali <laughs> in hell." <laughs> That's what he okay. says. So he goes back to face Mazda and says, Mazda, prepare to beat Kali in hell. There is a quick three-panel fight before Mazda is tossed into the volcano. Hawkman and Shira haul ass out of there. For some reason, they come across the native who tried to kill her in New York, who is dying himself for seemingly no reason. He just shows up. Uh, he just shows up to say... You again. Oh, well, I'm dying. I'll tell you what I know. Mazda was a scientist who conceived the idea of using the energy within a volcano to make himself a world power. He invented suits of asbestos-like material that fire couldn't pe- penetrate. It, sca- it scared the natives who thought the he- they saw fire ghosts, and then he dies. And all of the natives get uh, mesothelioma, apparently. Uh, because of all the asbestos in the area, there, you know, the hazmat cleanup on that island's probably got to be a bitch <laughs> for all the crap. I mean, I, I feel bad for Hawkman and Chiera. You know, they they have lung cancer in their future. It's all I'm saying, and it's very, very sad. But they return home, allowing the natives to believe that it was in fact volcano men that came out, instead of explaining to everybody, hey, you know, it was just some crazy guy whose uh, descendants are going to start up a car company and have a really bitchin' like, little sports car in the 90s called the Miata. And <laughs> that's what happened. 
but no, we're going to let you like, you know, still live in the in the stone age and believe that it was firemen because we're we're we're, we're really benevolent like that. So uh, <laughs> when I was reading this story and I thought that the the Mazda guy looked like uh, Molaron from Temple of Doom, it occurred to me that the all-time greatest comic book team up has not happened yet, and that is Indiana Jones and the Golden Age Hawkman. <laughs> that actually would be kind of cool. Because they're both archaeologists. Right. And, you know, both adventurers. And, you know, yeah, the nth metal, like, lets him fly. But really and truly, it's like two-fisted action is, is is the key to both of those. I mean, I don't know who they're bad. I guess the bad guy would have to be Nazis. Just in general. Oh, yeah. Nazis are the, are the, are the best villains ever, as I have said time and time again. Because they are. They're the last people we can hate comfortably in a politically correct climate. <laughs> Them and like evil aliens. That's like it. It's like Independence Day and anything set in World War II. Those are the two villains that we can accept as a culture. <laughs> but no, I, I kind of liked the story. It, it was kind of goofy. There, the, 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 the sexual overtones of the relationship between Carter and, 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 his, and his helpmate are, are like really obvious to me. I don't know if they were supposed to be that. I don't know if it's because I'm a pervert. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they like when he comes to her in her apartment, she's just like in bed wearing a bra. I mean, you never would have seen that shit in the Silver Age. You'd see it now, but she'd be like stark-ass naked, and it would be drawn by Adam Hughes. So, Well, see, I'm looking. Uh, I was following along with you on this, oh, on, uh, on the CBR that, I don't know, I've had for so long, I don't remember where I downloaded it from. But I'm wondering what this is scanned from, because apparently this is edited. Because you're talking about um, where he sees her in her bra, and it's not a part of this version that I'm looking at. Plus, the one that I'm looking at, the last panel of the Hawkman story is him carrying Shiera out, it says, from the Roaring Crater. And then the very next page is the beginning of the Spectre story. So there's a whole bunch that's edited out of this Hawkman story. I'd love to know what this is reprinted from. Either that or they just didn't scan those pages. Well, where does uh, does Hawkman seeing his girlfriend in her bra, Where where exactly does that fall in? Okay, you have the first page of the story where Hawkman's standing by the table, and you see like him in a tux and talking to her. On the second page, he fights off Aunt Jemima. I, yeah, he fights off Aunt Jemima, who I mistakenly thought that they had gone to Krakatoa. And there, do you see that panel I'm talking to, where it looks like they're both naked? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the very next page, you have Hawkman flying towards the volcano and seeing the men come out of it. And on the bottom of that page is where she's in her bra. So does it cut right? Uh, to the yeah, it, do, it does. It goes straight to the volcano. I don't even see a part with guys coming out of. The, oh wait a minute. Yeah, okay. There's the guys coming out. Yeah, on the bottom of that page, but it's on the top of the other one. No. Nope. So, so wow, that's. But doesn't he look like Molaron? Yes, he does. Yeah, second to last. Yeah, he page. really does. <laughs> he looks like an old, tired Molaron. But yeah, he does look like Molaron. Well, I had this other idea, but some dude named. Jones or something kicked my ass. <laughs> so I uh, I came to this place and just uh, my life sucks. I wish that they had provided art credits 
on these old comics because I really like the art in this Hawkman. I part. believe that's a Joe. I think that's a Joe Kubert. I, I don't know if he was drawing it. I'm not a. I'm not up as up on the Golden and Silver Age as I would like to be. I, I honestly think that Joe Kubert did the Hawkman because that was the thing about these issues of All Star. You know, we're ta- I'm taking them a story at a time, right? But uh, you know, like you said last week, that's kind of how you know they were they were almost separate stories in and of themselves with a wraparound like thing to link them all. But they were all done by their normal like the the, the guy that writes uh, and uh, that writes uh, Hawkman and draws Hawkman is the one that would write. And draw the Hawkman story for these uh, for these stories. Right. According to the Grand Comic Book Database, the script was by Gardner Fox, and the pencils and inks were Sheldon Moldoff and Everett E. Hibbert. Everett E. Hibbard uh, did the last panel of that uh, of that of that pay, of that story. Hmm. So I guess Sheldon Moldoff drew that. Huh. Huh. Well, next week we get to talk about the Spectre story, which is uh, written by Jerry Siegel. So I'm kind of looking forward oh, yeah. to that. And drawn by the Spectre co-creator Bernard Bailey. No relation. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, I, I guess I should give the credits for the previous uh the previous uh, uh, story we did. Uh, the whole script was written by Gardner Fox. The wraparound... Uh, meeting scenes that serve to introduce the story in each of the individual stories was drawn by Everett E. Hibbard. Uh, the the Flash story was was continued to be drawn by Everett E. Hibbard and written by Gardner Fox. So I guess I'll start giving the credits from now. On. There you go. <laughs> well, let's get into the main feature of the show this week, which is All Star Comics. Number 60. This came out on February 17th, 1976. Has a cover date of June, but in the Indicia on the inside, it says it's the May-June issue of 1976. Writer-editor was Jerry Conway, and we get a new penciler in this issue with Keith Giffen and Wally Wood as artists extraordinaire. And I'm guessing the name of this... uh, of this uh, story is just Vulcan Son of Fire. <laughs> uh, we open with Power Girl and Flash racing through the JSA slash Super Squad headquarters with some really cheesy, over-the-top feminist through the eyes of a male writer in the 70s dialogue. Power Girl set this up to get the older heroes to stop treating her like a kid, but the Flash ends up winning and being a little patronizing about it. After watching Wildcat have an emotional breakdown... <laughs> The Flash announces that the problem is is that they are bored. Mwah. <laughs> Suddenly a being calling himself Vulcan, Son of Fire, attacks them. Uh, then cut to Green Lantern heading back to his day job as president of the Gotham Broadcasting Company and musing on how the recession is putting his finances and job in jeopardy. So even reading this book that is 33 years old today has some resonance, which is nice to know. After some light-hearted, flirty banter with his secretary, uh, Kent Nelson shows up, turns into Dr. Fate, seemingly in front of the secretary, so he's... Dr. Fate's kind of bad at that whole secret identity thing. And they head off to deal with whatever mysterious problem Dr. Fate is sensing. 
Meanwhile, back at the Brownstone, Vulcan trashes the Super Squad. I mean, he beats them like red-headed stepchildren. This fight is kind of brutal. They just they, they, He beats them and then leaves them in the burning building. It's kind of awesome, actually. <laughs> in Washington, a colonel, who's never really named, tells Dr. Fate and Green Lantern about a kid named Christopher Pike. Pike grew up idolizing the JSA and eventually scratched his itch for adventure and excitement by becoming an astronaut. The previous year, Pike was selected to be part of the crew of Vulcan Probe 1, a 200-day orbit of the sun in preparation for their deep space exploration project. Once in space, Pike and his crew receive a a distress call from the fourth planet in Talos' system. Once on the planet, they discover the remains of a scientific expedition whose only survivor is Vina. Turns out that all of this is a lie and everything was illusion created by these bulbous-headed aliens looking to repopulate their planet using Pike and Vina. Oh, oh, wait, wait, that's the plot to the cage. I was going to say, that sounds very familiar to me. I, I'm sorry. That's the pl- I got my Christopher Pikes confused. I uh, somebody really likes Star Trek in this in this creative process. <laughs> Can't believe they named him freaking Christopher Pike. Are you serious? Uh, it, it cannot be a coincidence. I mean, we're no. talking about Vulcan and it's it's yeah. astronauts, and then Christopher Pike. Yeah, it cannot be a coincidence. Yeah, somebody is clearly a Star Trek fan. And it's, but it's kind of an esoteric Star Trek reference when you really think about it. I mean, the cage hadn't even been shown on television in 19, by 1976, had it? The cage had, um, excuse me, the menagerie had, the yes. cage had not, no. So, but basically, you know, Pike was kind of a footnote. I mean, he was an important footnote. I don't mean to cross the streams here, to use a two true freaks term. But, uh, you know, Menagerie was an important episode because it was like a two-parter. Right. But still, that's that's kind of an... Would you consider that at this time an esoteric kind of reference? Like only a certain amount of people would get? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's a nice little inside thing that, yeah. Uh, it, it'd be tough to tell because in 76... Well, I, I guess that, that Star Trek fandom would kind of be on the upswing because it'd only be a couple of years later until the movie came along. So, I don't know. I'd be interested to know. what well, You know what? We'll have to keep an eye on the letters page and see if yeah, anybody uh, writes definitely. in saying, hey, you know, does this have anything to do with Star Trek or thanks for the nod to Star Trek or something like that? Anyways, back to the the actual comic and and not the uh, the Star Trek moment for the show. Uh, Pike goes batshit crazy, attacks the crew, and somehow causes the probe to plunge into the sun. The command module melts around him, and somehow Pike survives and heads back to Earth, where he gets into this little black thing that beeps once for yes and two for no. <laughs> He's, I'm sorry. No, he doesn't. <laughs> that would be awesome, though. <laughs> Uh, Pike is immobile for days, but somehow wakes up and escapes. As the colonel begins to tell them about the problematical profile they have on their computer, Dr. Fate transports himself and Green Lantern back to Gotham as Fate received another psychic whoozy-whatsits, like the one that made him get Lantern and head to Washington. They see Pike, a.k.a. Vulcan, absorbing immense amounts of power, which causes Lantern and Fate to become upset, because if he absorbs too much, he will explode and take Gotham with him. Vulcan spots them and then gives the basic, we're going to fight and you're going to die speech, and that is the dramatic end to this issue. 
Dun, dun, dun. Um, I've got some good notes on that. I liked this issue. I, I really did. So did I. You know, I liked I'm, it a lot. I'm not the biggest Ernie Chawa, Ernie Chan fan, but I like the cover on this one. It's very dynamic with uh, with Vulcan, you know, just about slicing uh, Wildcat in half with his flaming axe, and then the other heroes are rushing in. They've got, you know, these speed lines coming off of them and all that. I really like that. It's very dynamic cover. It's really it's, – it's pretty cool. Poor Keith Giffen. Now, here, yeah. here he is in, in his first appearance in this book. This has got to be one of his earliest works, I'm thinking. I believe it And is. they misspell his name in the credits. It's it's so sad. <laughs> I was like, oh, poor Keith Giffen. But it's awesome <laughs> to see him here. I mean, you, you know, I, as primitive as this is in, in you know, as, as early as this is in Keith Giffen's style, I can clearly see... Yeah, you can kind of see his, yeah. especially his early '80s Legion work. Yes, is kind of evident in here. Yep, this is before um, he got really, really trippy. Because later on, one of the early episodes, if, if you don't mind my plug in one of my other shows, one of the early episodes I did of uh, Back to the Bins, I talked about a, an issue of Challengers of the Unknown that Keith Giffen drew and holy shit was that hard to fo- follow <laughs> only because it had I mean it was super exposition heavy it was recapping a ton of stuff that had happened in prior issues but then the Keith Giffen art you really needed a roadmap to be able to follow the panels and the progression of the story and it's not that it wasn't good it was that it gave you a freaking headache by the time you were done with it because he was really on one of those experimental trippy phases and he i forget the name of the artist that he became influenced by and apparently he crossed the line into almost like ripping the guy off. right yeah uh, there was kind of a, a conflict with this but this was before giffen had a had an interesting career he broke in to dc doing this book and and, and something else and then he just like blew every deadline he had and burned every bridge he possibly could and then finally called Paul Levitz and asked, you know, if I'm remembering the story correctly, you know, if he could get some work and that's when he started drawing the Legion. Right. So but uh yeah, I, I, I like you know, it's it's different than what we've seen. The Wallywood inking kinda gives it a little bit of familiarity, but there is a crap load of detail on that splash page of all those computer banks that are in the yes, and uh, in, in in the Justice Society headquarters. So it's, it's you know it's I like I miss backgrounds. The in the backgrounds of the headquarters in this, both of the computer banks you were talking about, and then like in the top of page. Um, you know, the pages are not numbered. I guess this would be page three mm-hmm. of the common area where Wildcat's watching television. You know what this really reminds me of is early issues of Perez's first run on the Avengers. You know, when he was okay. first cutting his teeth doing the Avengers. And it's the same type of thing. Super detailed backgrounds. You know, I mean, the books on the bookshelves are, you know, they're, they're every one of them. You know, you can make out the the spines, and you know everything's filled in. I really like it. It's really, really super detailed. And you're right; I miss backgrounds too. You don't see art like this anymore. 
or, or not as often any anymore. Uh, I got a couple notes about page three. Is Star Spangled Kid using his rod like a Green Lantern ring to create a chair? I believe he is. I noticed that myself when I was reading this, and my first thought he- was that he was levitating a chair. But because the at least the way I'm looking at it, the 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 chair that he's sitting in almost looks like it's got like a heat waver to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that he's actually forming that out of his rod rather than oh, that did not come out right at all <laughs> he's actually creating that from his cosmic um, rod rather than levitating a chair but I guess he could be doing either one but he did create a platform for Dr. Fate uh, excuse me Dr. Midnight to stand on in the last issue so that is true that is true um, I, I think I think Wildcat's got some anger issues on this page because he he punches the TV because it starts not working. And you would think that they would have cable uh, <laughs> at the brownstone and that they would have be like, or maybe the cable went out. I don't know. Uh, now nah, they're still using rabbit ears at this point. I'm guessing. <laughs> Where are they though? That, t- that, 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 that is one. That is a gigantic television for the 1970s. Uh, that's true. I think fills up like a part of the wall, but he just he just breaks it, and on the next page, on page four, you know, they're all just staring at him like, "Oh crap!" It's like, it, have you ever been around somebody who just loses their shit for seemingly no reason, and suddenly the room gets really awkward? You just broke the TV, asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was watching that. And Wildcat's like, uh, I guess I kind of lost my temper. No shit, you just put your fist through a television set. (laughs) And and the Flash just delivers this whole speech. We're bored. We're here on a Sunday. I should be home with my wife. You know, know, Jay, I I like you. I like you a lot. You are my favorite member of the Justice Society of America. Uh, I will make no bones about that. But I'm sure the people who aren't currently dying... Because some villains on a rampage don't give a rat's ass that you're stuck on fucking monitor duty. No, I love it. On a Sunday. I love this scene because he seems so real to me. You know, everything else in this, we're dealing with astronauts plunging into the sun and becoming freakish godlike beings. And we're, we're dealing with psychotic superheroes punching televisions and flying women with their boobs hanging out and all this other stuff I can't relate to. This thing with the fl- with Flash sitting around the headquarters bored out of his freaking mind where he'd rather be at home with his wife, I can totally relate to this, all right? This reminds me of all the days I'd be working retail in some mall, you know, somewhere and business was absolutely dead because the weather was totally shit outside and you're going, God damn it, I'm stuck in here when I could be like at home reading a stack of comics or something. So I love that the Flash in this instance is just like me. He's grousing and bitching that he's stuck at work too. It's awesome. I love it. I just, I see what you're saying and I can relate to that too because I still work retail. But at the same time, there's a difference between me sitting at retail and there isn't a customer coming in. And, you know, freaking brainwave is attacking South <laughs> Africa again, and thousands of people are dying. That's a good point. That's a good point, actually. <laughs> God damn it, I wish somebody tried to destroy the Earth today, because this sucks. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Well, when somebody did menace the Earth in that very first issue, they all acted like they were put out, and they had to vote on it. God damn it, do we want to save the Earth today? Everybody raise your hand if you want to. 
we got this communication yesterday, but you know, Survivor was on. I really wanted to see it, and my DVR has been acting up, so I couldn't trust that it was going to tape it. I still say that first issue would have been totally awesome. Seeing as how they were reading that message the next day, is if they'd got it off the teletype and said, uh, "Wait a minute." Then do the math real quick and realize that they have like 12 seconds to save the Earth and it's just too late. And Dr. Fate looks at Dr. Midnight and says, I always loved you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wrong. (laughs) Now, Power Girl does mention during the the race that uh, weeks have passed since they've beat Brainwave, so... I guess that we're supposed to be seeing the, the, you know, it's implying, I guess, that she's been hanging out with them for a while and getting to know them, and and they're starting to be accepted by the older members. I kind of like that. You know, I like that it's... Oh, yeah. There's a a continuity to it. You know, my problem with Power Girl in this issue is that she goes from being kind of a well... uh, I don't... I almost said a well-rounded character. (laughs) Hell yeah. Um, from being a, a well... I can't even say well-formed. God damn it, how am I going to say this? Um, from being a well-developed... <laughs> Jesus! From being a character to a caricature. Okay, that's safe. In this um, in this one issue, you think she does? Well... <sighs> come on, Flash, you can do better than that. You're the fastest man alive, member. Or is that, remember? Or is that just a sexist myth? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's just like right there, and then it's just like fantastic. All these weeks since we beat Brainwave, Flash and the other Justice Society regulars have been treating me like a kid. But now, finally, he's begun to accept me as a peer. This race was the smartest idea I ever had, and even if I lose, it'll be worth it. I've gotten sick and tired of being considered a child, especially by men. I like the note. You know, where she says, yes. you know, something about my cousin has been keeping me, you know, my existence secret on Earth. Her cousin is Superman. And the note, the editor's note says, Power Girl is the Supergirl of Earth 2. And, you know, I have to say, not really. Because no, she no. is the cousin of this Earth Superman. And Supergirl is the cousin of Earth 1 Superman. But, you know, Power Girl, even at this stage in her third appearance is so much more than just the Supergirl of Earth 2 because right out of the gate, she is, to me, is much more of a character than Supergirl, the Earth 1 Supergirl, ever really became. That that character, to me, never really seemed to mature or, or develop into anything, really. She was just, well, you know, a, a young girl with Superman's powers that that never really seemed to go anywhere. Whereas this character, right out of the gate, you know, she's she's tough. She doesn't take any shit from anybody. She's, you know, the the what did they call it? The the liberated modern woman of the time. You know, she had the whole women's lib thing going on. While that does great after a while, because she seems to beat people over the head with it. At this early stage, I really like that. You know, I really like that she's she's letting everybody know right up front, you know, this is what I'm all about. 
I, I think Supergirl is the girl you dated in high school, and Power Girl is the girl you date in college. That's a little more oh, there you go. experienced and, and a little more Ooh, yeah. like, wow, that's that's a real woman. And obviously, because she's, you know, like I said, stacked like the Library of Congress. <laughs> no, I've always, you know, I, having grown up in the Byrne era, or the Carlin era, or however you want to call it, the post-crisis era, you know, Supergirl was never... I never had a, like an emotional attachment to super the Supergirl of the pre-crisis DCU, right? Uh, so therefore, I could I can latch on to Power Girl a little more because I don't have that almost. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but it seems like certain people who who like Kara look at them as their kid sis, look at her as their kid sister, right? That you know, like grew up with them, and you know, it's like they they're projecting, they're palling around with a little sister onto her. Whereas Power Girl is just like the girl you you'd want to kind of you know take to a movie, and uh, you know, like maybe get some dinner with, and and, and and hopefully get back to her place, and and she doesn't shoot you down because she will. I mean, it's going to happen. But, you know. <laughs> I mean, she's got her pick of everybody. I mean, look at look at the men she's hanging out with. She's you know, Sylvester and Jay and. And you know, I think we mentioned last episode that uh, that there's some serious sexual tension going on between her and Wild. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, big time. I think he's sexually frustrated. Actually, I think that's why his ears droop like that, <laughs> and why he punches the why he punches the TV. Yeah. Um, I thought the fight with Vulcan was pretty decent. For some reason, he changes into metal in the middle of it, and that's never really explained <laughs> or really dealt with again in the story. But I really liked the scene with Green Lantern. Yes. Where he goes back to work, and he's wearing the Clark Kent tie. Uh, you know, Giffen and Wood really make that costume look kind of neat, too. And there's this neat banter between him uh, and his, uh, his uh, secretary, Eileen, and it's just like, where is it? I've paid. I'm paid to take a recession hard. That's why I'm a company president. You're paid to help me live through it. That's why you're my secretary. Oh, Mr. Scott, you say the most romantic things, <laughs> Ms. O'Neill. If you ever become an actress, don't play the innocent ingenue. You're not very believable. I bet you say that to all the women, Alan dear. It's just like, wow, he's totally like nailing her mm-hmm. after hours. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he uses the ring. Um I just want to know what the hell is Vulcan's beef with the with the Justice Society anyway? I mean, is he just trying to make a name for himself and and figured they were an easy target or something or Well, you know, they they tell his origin uh and it's a very Marvel origin for a character. Uh Again, this this—it's not like they marvelized the Justice Society, but they kind of marvelized the Justice Society in this. So after a, a conversation where Alan Scott shows that he's kind of bitter and cynical towards the government, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know the 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 Colonel is like, frankly, gentlemen, I'm astounded. Commander Pike's disappearance is a mash. Oh wait, sorry, I don't know who says this. Uh, it's either Green Lantern. Or, 
Where is it, the colonel? It's like, frankly, gentlemen, I'm astounded Commander Pike's disappearance is a matter of national security. And Green Lantern says, w- which means it's supposed to be a secret, right, colonel? Don't you think that particular gag is a little hard to swallow these days? Believe it or not, Green Lantern, certain information is vital to our country's security, even today. What the hell is that? Yeah, that, I read that too and thought, wow, that's a wonky piece of dialogue. So Green Lantern is really saying that, oh, gee, you know, in these more enlightened times, modern days, there's there's no such thing as matters of national security. What? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> this was an era when we were ramping up in, in you know, our nuclear escalation and shit like that. You're telling me that there weren't any national security secrets that, uh, oh, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, there's no such thing. You know, everything's pop- – I don't, I don't understand that piece of dialogue at all. It's, it reads very, very wonky to me. But when he tells Pike's origins, Pike idolized the JSA. As a kid, in fact, it's kind of funny that the colonel is telling a story to Green Lantern and Dr. Fate, and that's the two posters in Pike's room. Right. Well, on that panel right there, I love – this was my favorite piece of dialogue in the whole book. The colonel's uh, relating the story of of young Chris Pike, and he says, Pike had a normal childhood, I suppose, happy home life, the usual number of friends. And that struck me right there, and I said – how many is that exactly? Because, you know, I'd really like to know if I've made quota yet. You know? <laughs> the usual number of friends? What What the hell is that supposed to I didn't have the usual mean? number of friends. No, me either. I was kind of shut in for most of my high school experience. <laughs> um, something I had to look up just to satisfy my own curiosity is going way, way back. I missed this earlier when you were talking about uh, Green Lantern at work. You know, when he first switches to his Alan Scott outfit, he's uh, thinking to himself and he says, ah, Doiby Dickles, where are you when I need you for a little cheering up? And I thought, yeah, where the hell is Doiby Dickles? I never really knew what happened to him after the Golden Age. I thought maybe he Wasn't died. Freaking ancient then? <laughs> yeah. So I, I did some digging around, and according to what I was able to find, it, it seems like he actually, at, at the close of the Golden Age, he went off into space to marry some oh, princess right. of an alien that's right. planet pulled, or something. He, yeah, he pulled a Charles Xavier. Uh, bang some alien okay. for the rest of his life, which is good you know, for a crusty old New York cabbie that's probably got a two-pack-a-day habit. There you go. Probably drinks like a fish, too. God, Doiby Dickles was an alcoholic. He does come back, though, um, at least according to, to what I saw. He comes back for that, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Sins of the Youth or whatever, that, that thing where all the, like, the the young justice yes. age, yes, which ages or whatever. Yeah, where Mary, girl of a thousand gimmicks, showed up all old and crusty. Cool. And uh, the Tornado Twins showed up again, too. So I remember that. I loved Young Justice. Yeah, I have that whole series and all the, the crossovers. I've never read it, so i got to make, make my way around to that one of these days. But, yeah, I just was curious. But, uh, I had to find out. Once I read that, it, it just set me off. I was like, oh, I've got to – now what, what did happen to him? Where is that guy? So I, I just <laughs> – I can't get over that this guy's name is Christopher Pike. I can't I can't unhear it. Because the first time I read this, I wasn't very up on my Star Trek lore. So so now, you know, I've I've heard it, I can't unhear it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just and he does go crazy. On the next page he just punches both of his crew members in the face. 
like a two-fisted whoopa. <laughs> Yeah, no, it says that he killed him, too. So that one little punch to the back of the head took them both out at the same time. That's that's some powerful mojo right there, man. He did. He took them both out. Well, I, I have a nitpick here. I, I know it's okay. nitpicky, but it still bugs me a little bit because I, I it actually bugs me when these type of plot devices come up just for the sake of, like, getting people in place and everything is when people – suddenly develop a power or an ability simply i mean it's so transparent that it's simply just to to help the story get from you know point a to point b and uh, you know the example in in this issue is dr fate seeks out green lantern and basically says look dude something's making my spider sense tingle we got to go investigate it and this sort of thing happens with with characters like, say, the Phantom Stranger will pop into Clark Kent's apartment and say, come with me, Superman. You know, I'm, I'm detecting that, you know, that something's afoul in the universe or whatever. And they go off and battle it. Well, where the hell is this power of theirs all the rest of the time? You know, when when, you know, the the people of Kurak are planning to nuke some major city and Superman just finds out about it by complete accident. Where the hell is the fan of Stranger then? You know, so those type of things kind of drive me a little bit crazy because it, it, it feels being mysterious. Yeah, there you go. It just feels that much more transparent as a plot device when only occasionally. You know, when they're really screwed for a way to figure out how to involve the characters in a plot, does Dr. Fate remember that he's got the ability to, to sense that something's happening elsewhere? But the rest of the time, you know, he's pretty oblivious or whatever. I don't know. That, that sort of thing drives me crazy. I, I, I'm not a really big fan of the Phantom Stranger. He always strikes me as one of those guys that wears turtlenecks just to get laid. And like, think you know, try to be the suave and mysterious. Well, one. of it's course just, he does. I hate you. <laughs> you got you don't you you serve no function. Oh come on I, now! Don't be dissing on the Phantom Stranger now. You're reading those backups in Saga of the Swamp thing. You tell me. Yeah, they suck. But yeah, he's so cool. <laughs> he's cool, but they suck. Very good. <laughs> You know, having said all that, though, the ending to this is pretty solid, though. I'm trying. Let me flip back. Well, how does it end? Oh, yeah, it's it's it ends on a cliffhanger where he's prepared to to whoop their asses to the death. It says so. Yeah. Next issue, the staggering uh, conclusion of this one of the greatest all star epics ever. Well, yeah, if you say so. I don't remember how it ends. With flame and fury. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Next issue on sale during the third week in April. It could show up on Tuesday. It depends on when your dealer gets his books in. (laughs) It's not like today where it's like Wednesday, like clockwork, unless there's a holiday and then it's Thursday. (laughs) Or or Friday. Unless one of the Cuberts is drawing it and you'll see it three years from now. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Yes, Scott, we have had countless conversations about internal dialogue and external dialogue. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. My bad. Anyway. Um, Did you have any any other notes about the story? No. No, I'm ready to go through and check out all the wackiness and the ads and everything else at this point. I was... I was very disappointed in the ads in this issue, actually. Aw, come on. There's a couple good ones in here. 
Well, we got a a, um, a Charms Blow Pop ad <laughs> with a with which looks like they they let one of the kids of the ad execs draw it, um, or maybe they had it like at one of those art contests. Uh, we got the usual like collection of X-ray specs and crap. <gasps> the Star Trek exploration set. I had one of these when I was a kid. It was keen. Where is that? It's uh, it's on the same page as the X-ray specs. It's up at the very top. Right. Oh, center. I see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I see what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, they have a shirt that I'm sure a young Scott Gardner wore, with the uh, young American, um, young America for '76 piece. For- Where the hell are you looking at that? It's uh, on the page opposite of where Dr. Fate shows up at Gotham Broadcasting. (laughs) You see, I was born in 76, so I'm kind of glad I missed out on that bicentennial. Oh, the bicentennial ruled, man. As a matter of fact, I am bound and determined that I am going to live until 2076 just because I want to see the tricentennial. Of course, you know, America will probably be a smoking crater by then, but still, you know, it's a goal anyway. We'll see. Well, if we get if we get past 2012, we're going to we'll be fine. Um, we got another Werewolf Slim Jim commercial above a make money fast with a sales kit of some kind, well, you know, some kind of pyramid scheme for children, I'm guessing. Um <laughs> There, there's a there's an ad for a for a correspondence school in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Which actually, I used to live near Scranton when I was a little kid. I lived near Wilkesbury. It's not Wilkes Bar. It's Wilkesbury. If you ever see it, but um, it says there must be a better way to earn a living. There's a woman looking at a man. That man looks like he's about to backhand her. <laughs> like she's just giving him shit, and he's just, just shut doing. up, you bitch. <laughs> You're right. It's, he looks just about fed up with her shit right about then, doesn't he? Domestic abuse is funny. <laughs> Anyways, but on the opposite of that, you have the two giant specials. You have that awesome Batman yeah. uh, cover. Uh, that was eventually reused on, I have it, like right over here. It was a uh, Blue Ribbon Digest. Yep. Reused that that one. And that uh, that's the... That Blue Ribbon Digest is where I first read the Joker's five-way revenge, which is like one of the best Joker stories ever. And then more secret origins of the supervillains with uh, Bizarro, the Catwoman costume I could never stand, uh, Captain Boomerang, Mirror Master Scarecrow, the Shark, Cheetah, and I lose it from then. The art, it's too small. Yeah, it's hard to stand that one. Uh, we got another ad for the Amazing World of DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Batman, 60s Batman and Robin looking at the uh, a subscription service. Did you ever subscribe to comics as a kid? My mother sent off a subscription. Um, I wanted to subscribe to Superman because DC Comics were extremely hard to find in our area. You know, we, we had a great source of Marvels. You know, at the at the local cigar store, there was a, a spinner rack that would get Marvels and sometimes like Charlton and stuff. But the, I don't remember them ever carrying DC. So we we had to go to like the next biggest town to get DCs, and I was always missing issues. So for one birthday or it must have been a birthday, my mother sent off a subscription, and I wanted Superman. But what she wrote on the thing was DC Comics. 
So I ended up with a subscription to DC Comics Presents, which I was really bummed about at the time. But it, it turns out that it was a good run. It was right in like the 50s. So there was a lot of good stories in there with like – I remember there was a Batman, Aquaman story – or excuse me, Superman, Aquaman story. There was a Superman and Captain Marvel story that was really good. There was some good stuff in there. So yeah, I, I did subscribe uh, uh, once as a kid and then uh, another time years later – I subscribed for a while and uh, actually got a, a, a nice letter printed in uh, – what was that thing that used to come out and look like a newspaper? Comic Buyer's Guide. Oh, really? Bitching about Very how nice. shitty the subscription service was <laughs> because they literally – they sent it in just like this crappy plastic bag with like a little – really super thin piece of of paper cardboard yeah and it was supposed they said it was a backer board but it was not a backer board i mean it would not protect your comic at all so for the whole year and this was i was getting i think it was detective comics they were mangled every single one that i got was just ruined and i was so pissed that i was buying the same book twice i had to go to the comic shop to get a, a good copy and then, you know, the one that would come in the mail, I just basically just threw it in a stack somewhere that I ended up – I think I gave them away to somebody or something because they were just crap, you know. They were they were destroyed so bad and I said, oh, that's it. I'll never subscribe again. <laughs> I, had a, I had one subscription that I got through – it was a serial. I had a subscription to the real Ghostbusters comic from Now. Oh, comics. Now. I love Now comics. So uh, that's the only one I ever did. I wanted to because, you know, it was a good deal. But I'm kind of glad I didn't because you're not the first horror story I've ever heard. All righty. We got a uh, look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's superware. You've got uh, <laughs> bath towels. You've got... Uh, well, at least they're not as. At least they're drawings of kids in the PJs, unlike those underoos commercials I've seen on YouTube that make me think that uh, you know freaking Stabler and Mariska Hargitay from Law and Order Special Victims Unit are going to bust down my door and beat my ass for watching them. <laughs> God, they're creepy. Are they? I haven't seen. Them. I loved underoos uh, as a kid, though. It's little kids hopping around in their underwear. Ah, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, belts. You pervert. <laughs> no, I went uh, as and it creeped me out. Like I no, no, I know. That. I was just teasing. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that there there are probably like you know, hey there, Musliam. You bring me any good news today? <laughs> Get back here, you fat son of a bitch. Um, this kid in the middle. Oh, I'm telling you, I would kill a bus full of nuns for a for a Captain Marvel set of PJs, man. That's awesome. You wanted some Shazam PJs when you were a kid? I want them right now. <laughs> Do you ever go through like like a department store or like Walmart or something or, or JCPenney's or whatever, and they've got all these great like like Star Wars or superhero things for kids, and you're like, damn it, why aren't they in 40-year-old chubby men sizes? <laughs> you know, why are they all for like 8-year-old kids, damn them? You know, it's like... Yeah. I see there are these really awesome like t-shirts and pajamas and stuff, and I'm like, I would wear that. Make that in my size. Well, I, I have a crazy thing that I want some footy pajamas, but uh, <laughs> yeah. 
that's just me. Well, we got hats with the Superman. We got the Superman symbol and Batman, which I always kind of disliked. And then a Superman buckle. And for the really spiffy dresser, this magnificent beauty solid this magnificent beauty, solid metal with a pewter finish. This belt buckle is Superman's dream. <laughs> Yeah, because he gets up every day and goes, you know, I can fly, and I can survive in space, and I got heat vision. You know what I want? A belt buckle with my symbol on it. <laughs> I'd give it all up for a belt buckle. <laughs> uh, from here on, the ads still, yeah, they kind of suck. You got like uh, you got like one of those 250 Revolutionary War heroes, you know, so like the little... The little uh, I guess they're army men, but they're Revolutionary War era. Yeah, they melted real good. (laughs) I never had them. We do have a Justice for All Includes Children. Apparently this is the third exciting uh, installment. I don't know who's doing the artwork here. It's not Neil Adams. This is Kurt Swan, and I'm going to guess Vinnie Coletta doing the art on this, or the uh, inking, rather, on this. I'm almost positive that this is Kurt Swan on the on the pencils, but the ink's a little bit hard to identify. I don't care for it though. Yeah, I'm not really happy about it, but it's kind of cool because it's like it shows Superman flying around while these kids are just beating the piss <laughs> out of each other in the schoolyard. I mean, this is an outsiders level rumble. You know, Patrick Swayze and Matt Dillon are in this shot. Uh, uh, or in this shot somewhere, and, and and you know, like this guy goes, "Are you the school principal? This fighting is terrible. You should throw these boys out of school right here on the spot and keep them out." And and the principal was kind of a wuss. I'm I'm, I'm guessing because he doesn't really break it up. It takes Superman to do that. And uh, he goes, "That isn't done. There must be a hearing before someone is suspended from school." What what fucking school is this? <laughs> Not anymore. I'm sorry. My high school, man, you could throw... <laughs> if they wanted you out, it was like, get out yep. now. There was no hearing. But uh, Superman goes, he's right. Following proper procedure means that everyone will be treated alike. That means to ask questions means less chance for mistakes. And then the principal's like, when someone is suspended after a hearing, he can be sure he's had all of his rights respected. Not in my high school. <laughs> yeah, God, your high school sounds like it sucks. I've heard you telling stories. Jesus. <laughs> Um, and Superman goes, being considered innocent until proven guilty is one of your basic rights. Justice for all includes children, and knowledge is power. Hooray! But I love the panel at the top where Superman comes whipping around the corner to break up this fight, because I don't know what in the hell race or ethnicity that these people are supposed to be, but doesn't it look like the white kids are fighting off a bunch of zombies? <laughs> we should totally... Scan this, put it in a Photoshop, and make it that they were fighting zombies. It does. I mean, they, the way they're colored, they're like they're like grayish green, like like early Hulk color. So it does. It looks like they're fighting the living dead in this in this schoolyard. I love it. I won't say brains because I hate those types of zombies. <laughs> Well, before we get to the to what is quickly becoming the favorite part of the show for Scott and I, I think, uh, there is another uh, full-page ad for those uh, famous first editions and stuff yeah. uh, that says, Note, new price for these back issues. They are now $2 each. I wish. Yeah, man. I mean, seriously, there's what? Uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. 16, so that's 32 bucks for all of that. 
one of those today is like 32 bucks. I've seen them go for as high as $30, $40. I think the last time I bought some was at a, a flea market, and I want to say they were probably 10 bucks a piece, and I thought that was a steal. So, yeah, yeah, yeah if I could get all all these for two bucks hell yeah i'd even get the crappy ones that i don't even care about like ghosts and tarzan you know because i I, bible stories actually the bible stories was kind of cool i I can remember that one yeah it was actually pretty neat you know because uh i I had a couple different bible comics when i was a kid you know it was like the story of of the bible in comic form that were actually kind of cool because they didn't skimp on the art for something like that. I think they feared that they'd be struck down by lightning or something if they <laughs> did like a shit God. interpretation of the Bible, you know? God will smite you for fudging on what Moses <laughs> looks like. Hey, Julie Schwartz, let's do the Bible in comic form. Yeah, but, but put Herb Trimpy on it. <laughs> you know, I can just see that, you know? Jesus. <laughs> Thou hast forsaken (laughs) (laughs) and the herb trimpy society will be emailing us no doubt but we do have a hostess ad i almost didn't see it because it's on the inside cover this time for some reason it was very bizarre uh but we have another batman adventure batman and twinkieless gotham city (laughs) open up on the penguin well, the guy with his hands in his pockets looks like he's playing with himself. He's got a little bit of bulgeage going on there. Yeah, he does. And he's smiling, too. Like, the penguin doesn't totally notice me touching myself. <laughs> but the penguin's like... But the penguin's like, I'll ruin the, I'll ruin this town. Gotham City will be t- Twinkie-less. I have hoarded all the Twinkies by hypnotizing the Twinkies delivery men. And Commissioner Gordon says, Batman, this is terrible. All the Twinkies have disappeared from Gotham City. We need your help desperately. Emergency, Robin. Get to the Batmobile. My seatbelt's as good as fastened. So then they're driving towards, I guess, the scene of the crime. <laughs> We're going to get through one of these when we don't laugh, I swear to God. What do you think would be so foul as to do such a dastardly trick, Batman? No fiend would be so foul except, yes, the Penguin. Penguin, release the Twinkies delivery men from their spell. Never! No one will ever get any Twinkies. In- including at the prison where you'll be... <laughs> And it's his, his perverted henchman, who looks still looks like he has his hands in his pockets as Batman's tying him up, says, Please tell him I've got to have my Twinkies. Golden sponge cake with creamy filling inside. What could be more delicious than a hostess Twinkie? Except more Twinkies! Let's go. Okay, okay. <laughs> you get a big delight in every bite of hostess Twinkies. Hey! <laughs> Gotta bring out the Batman music again, I guess. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right, before we close this bad boy down, we do have a character profile. Uh, We have chosen to finish out the the Super Squad, as much as I still hate that name, by profiling profiling the Star-Spangled Kid. Yeah. Uh, do you want to take the lead on this, or do you want me to? I've just got, <clears throat> excuse me, I've just got the barest of of bare bones outlines on this. Um, 
the Star Spangled Kid was created by uh, Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel and another guy called uh, named Hal Sherman, who I really don't know a thing about. He first appeared in Action Comics number 40 from September 1941. And, uh, you know, it, it would be years later where I mean I always liked the Star Spangled Kid but it would be years later where I really became a fan of him he he adopts another identity much later in his career um but I always I still thought he was cool just because he has that kind of mystique thing going on where I just really didn't know all that much about him he uh had been a member of this team called the Seven Soldiers of Victory who it was revealed later on they got lost in time sometime in the late 1940s and they were rescued you know decades later by um the justice league and the justice society in one of their team-up adventures and so he's kind of got the captain america man out of time thing going on in a lot of these issues you know where where he was still he was still a young kid wasn't he wasn't he supposed to be like in his late teens, early 20s, something like that? He probably would have been in his early 20s then. Yeah. Because he was a young kid at the beginning of World War II. I mean, he's kind of, you know, he has the weirdest name ever, Sylvester Pemberton. Yeah. Uh, Who apparently was a bit of a child prodigy and rich as hell. Now, the origin has has shifted over the years, because one of the ones I read is that he was at a... uh, at a movie theater and somebody was like ranting pro-Nazi propaganda and him and one of the other patrons, Pat Dugan, who is an auto mechanic, like team up to, to, I guess, beat the hell out of the guy. Uh, And in others, I've seen that Pat Dugan was the family mechanic and the chauffeur. But in either case, it was an interesting dynamic that it was a child hero and an adult sidekick. Right. And you always get the sense that, you know, yeah, Sylvester Pemberton was was pretty smart, and yeah, he could probably handle himself in a fight, but it was always Pat Dugan as Stripesy who was coming in to like be the serious ass-kicker and bail his ass out. <laughs> um, the creepy thing about his backstory is in 1948, his parents adopted a girl named Mary for companionship. Hmm... And she stumbled upon his secret and became a hero herself named Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks. That's a dumb name. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, that was kind of snarky and insulting, but it's late. Um, No, yeah, apparently they spent only a few weeks trapped in time. Uh, But like you said, decades passed and... You you mean to them from their perspective it only seemed like a few weeks? it It was only like a few weeks. Okay, and then and then they got rescued. At least that's that's the couple things when I was doing research on this. But you know, all of all of the people he knows are are, are dead, except you know, like his fellow Laws Legionaries, because that was the original name, uh, or Laws Legionnaires, I guess it would be, right? Uh, which was the original name of the Seven Soldiers of Victory, and you know, uh, you know, he would recognize all of like the Golden Age heroes, but like. Anybody his age is like ancient at this point, right? And or too old for him to really relate to, and and I feel bad for him. I really do. Uh, and 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 he really he seems to be handling it well outside of that first issue where 
Hawkman and Dr. Midnight were really patronizing to him. <laughs> we'll hang back and let you take care of it, but if it gets really bad, we'll bail your ass out because <laughs> you're going to fail and we know it. But no, I, I've, you know, I would like the Star Spangled Kid and eventually the, the, hero, the other hero he became, but he's never been one of my favorites right. of this group. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad he's here, and I'm going to be glad when the Super Squad name's gone, and he's just part of the team. Yeah, I don't think that sticks around much longer. I, I think that it, it slowly just kind of... four or five more issues. Yeah, it just kind of slowly fades away from from disuse more than anything. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I did. I liked his character. I can remember being aware of him as a kid, and I'm not sure from where, probably from one of the the appearances in Justice League because, you know, as much as I'm not really a a fan of that today, you know, that that Dick Dillon era of Justice League, I did read a lot of that when I was a kid, probably just because all the heroes were in that book, especially when they would have the the Justice Society team-ups. And I think that's probably where I first saw the the Star-Spangled Kid. And I always liked him. I always thought he was really cool and everything, but just really didn't know all that much about him. And yeah, I, I like his later stuff. I, I really did. I liked where he was where he was headed in that later identity. So yeah, when we get there, we'll we'll definitely have to retouch on that character. All righty. Um, anything else for this episode, sir? Any kind of just that uh, this issue, um, All Star Comics number sixty, is reprinted in Justice Society Volume One trade paperback that was released in two thousand six. Uh, it's got a really nice Brian Boland cover too. Have you ever seen the cover? No, I don't think I have because I thought that that had a J- uh, Joe Staten cover on it actually. No, Brian Boland, I believe, did both of the covers to the the the, the All Star and Adventure run that we're going through was was all reprinted. So, if you do want to follow along with us, you're you're actually able to. You won't be able to see all the neat ads, um, like the get make money and get prizes ad on the back <laughs> one. I guess for selling grit. Is that what that or was? Or crack? One of the two. I'm not sure. <laughs> You've been listening to Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. You can email the show by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. You can find the show at two, yes, count them, two websites. The first being www.fortressofbailey2.com. You can also find the show and subscribe to it through iTunes at www.twotruefreaks.com. Libson.com. Scott has two other podcasts that he co-hosts on a weekly basis. The first is Two True Freaks, which Scott hosts with his childhood friend and former weightlifting partner of Lou Ferrigno, Chris Honeywell. Then there's Back to the Bins, which Scott co-hosts with a cavalcade of podcasting's finest hosts. Both of those can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has two other podcasts he hosts or co-hosts as well. The first is Views from the Long Box, which Mike hosts all by his lonesome for the most part. And you can find that at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's the From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor. That show can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. Thank you.
you for listening, and join us next week as we present more Tales of the Justice Society of America. 